If you're just joining us for the first time, whether you're here in person or whether you're watching online, maybe for the first or second time, we are working our way through a sermon series on the life of King David. King David is a fascinating person in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the most significant figures in the Old Testament. There is actually more biographical material written about King David than about any other person in the Old Testament. And in fact, there is more written about King David than any any other person in the ancient world. You will find no more information about any other person than you will find about King David. As we turn forward to the New Testament, we know that Jesus is called the son of David, and so there's a sense in which we cannot truly understand who Jesus is until we understand who King David is. King David was a man after God's own heart. Certainly a very flawed man, a sinful man, and yet someone who shows us what a life transformed by the gospel looks like. And so let's give our attention to the reading of God's word in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll be reading 1 through 13, the, the entirety of the chapter. This is God's word. And David said, Is there any, still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always." And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is God's word. Let's go to God in prayer. 
O Lord our God. We thank you for this remarkable story. We pray that as we study it this morning, we would not, again, be simply simply passive observers, but that we would be active participants in this great story of redemption. Change our hearts by the power of your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your favorite Disney movie? Now, I'm thinking particularly of the animated movies, not necessarily the Star Wars movies or Miracle or Old Yeller or Rin Tin Tin. I'm thinking specifically about the animated films. Which one is the best one? Is it Frozen? Is it Moana? Is it The Lion King? Is it The Little Mermaid? Is it Bambi? Is it Dumbo? Well, there are a lot of great Disney movies out there, but if you answered Cinderella, then you are correct. (laughs) Cinderella is, by far, the best Disney animated movie. It's not even close. And if you said Wreck-It Ralph or Wreck-It Ralph 2, I'm not sure that we can be friends. Uh, The Wreck-It Ralph franchise makes the Dumb and Dumber movies look like Citizen Kane by comparison. They are truly awful films, but I digress. Cinderella is the best Disney movie because it's a rags-to-riches story. It's the story of a poor, undeserving young woman, a woman with a broken family, a woman with no hope for the future, who finds love in the arms of a prince. A prince who loves her unconditionally. When all of her attempts to be someone that she's not fall apart. When the clock strikes midnight and her carriage turns back into a pumpkin. The prince, Prince Charming, says to her, Your beauty doesn't make me love you. My love makes you beautiful. Isn't that an incredible story? It is the best story. And in the end, she lives happily ever after. And at no point in the story does she sit down and do an interview with Oprah, complaining about the rest of the royal family and how terrible they are. I love the story. I hope you love the story too. But what if it's not just a story? What if it's actually true? What if it actually happened? What if it actually happens? What if there really is a prince who loves us unconditionally? What if his love is sacramental? What if his love is covenantal? What if his love isn't transactional? What if his love is transformational? This morning, we're going to look at one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, the story of David and Mephibosheth. In many ways, the story of David and Mephibosheth is a real-life Cinderella story. In the story, Mephibosheth goes from rags to riches. At the beginning of the story, he's living in a tiny little city, low to bar, living in his friend's guest house. But by the end of the story... He finds himself in Jerusalem, living right next door to the king. It's a story about kindness. It's a story about mercy. It's a story about grace. 
It's a story about how one man's sacrifice turned a stranger into a friend. And another man's self-interest turned a friend into a stranger. It's a story that shows us the heart of Jesus, the true king, the son of David, who welcomes all of us to dine at his table, who says, come, do this in remembrance of me, for as long as you eat the bread and drink the cup, as long as Mephibosheth is invited to dine at my table, you will experience the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our outline. What I want us to do is I want us to look at the three main characters of the story, and then I want us to consider a fourth main character, someone who's always lurking just below the surface. First, we'll look at Mephibosheth, a man who needed kindness. Second, we'll look at Ziba, a man who withheld his kindness. Third, we'll look at David, who who lavished his kindness on Mephibosheth, and finally, we'll look at Jesus, who lavishes his kindness on us. Is there room for Mephibosheth at your table? Is there room for you at God's table? How do you go from spiritual rags to spiritual riches? Let's take a closer look. We begin with Mephibosheth, a man who needed kindness. Mephibosheth was King Saul's grandson, and he was, according to the narrator, a broken man. He was a man with nothing. He was a man who desperately needed God's grace. We're told by the narrator that he was physically disabled. First, we're told that he was crippled in his feet. Later, we're told that he was lame in both feet. Now, earlier, if you back up a few chapters at 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're told that when Mephibosheth was only five years old, his nurse dropped him while she was running, and after that, he was never the same. My guess is that when he fell, he either broke his ankles or his feet, and somehow his bones never healed correctly, but I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV, so take that diagnosis with a grain of salt. Just my speculation, we know he had a severe physical disability. It was so severe, again, that it's mentioned twice in just 13 verses. My guess is that he lived in, lived with his friend Makir in the city of Lodabar because he couldn't physically take care of himself. He was also financially disabled. He had no money. He had no land. Apparently, he lost his family fortune when Saul, his grandfather, and Jonathan, his father, and his many uncles died in battle. Apparently, he, he, he had nothing left. At one point, he was part of the richest family in all of Israel, the grandson of the king, and now he had nothing left. He was also emotionally disabled. I think he was struggling with depression. Listen to how he described himself in verse 8. He, and he paid homage to David, and he said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Now, might I humbly suggest to you that if you go around calling yourself a dead dog, you might be suffering from some form of depression. 
Now, it makes sense given that almost everyone in his family had died. His father, his grandfather, both died in battle. Most of his uncles died in battle. His brother was assassinated in chapter 4. It's no wonder that Mephibosheth was depressed. It's no wonder that when King David said, bring Mephibosheth to me, let him appear before me, that he expected the worst. He was an emotionally broken man. He was also a spiritually broken man. Mephibosheth was living in the wilderness. And normally the Bible associates the wilderness with danger, either physical danger or spiritual danger. Robbers attack people in the wilderness. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? He was attacked by robbers in the wilderness. Wolves devour sheep in the wilderness. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples? He said, I send you out like a sheep, like sheep among the wolves. Again, there's a double meaning there, spiritual danger. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Jacob wrestled with God in the wilderness. When Cain killed Abel, God sent him into the wilderness. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they were cast out of the garden and into the wilderness. And now we find Mephibosheth alone in the wilderness of Lodabar. Mephibosheth is cut off from God. He's cut off from his people. He's a desperate, broken man. Can you relate to Mephibosheth? I certainly can. I think all of us are on some level broken. I think all of us are some, on some level distressed. I think all of us are on some level hurting people. Now, for some of us, it's physical, like it was for Mephibosheth. Some of you are battling cancer. Others of you are battling things like Parkinson's. We have members of our congregation who are struggling with Alzheimer's and diabetes and COVID-19. Some of you have new hips and new knees, and you're limping around or using canes or walkers. Some of you have broken bones that aren't healing correctly exactly like Mephibosheth. For others of us, it's financial. People all over America right now are struggling to pay rent. People all over America right now are under a bur crushing burden of student debt, five, six figures. I talk to them all the time. People who just simply cannot breathe because of the financial pressures that they're under. For some of us, it's emotional. Some of you lost parents this year, parents who died. Some of you lost grandparents. Some of you lost friends, husbands, wives. Just two weeks ago, I watched a live stream of a friend's funeral. Uh, my friend, Pastor Tim Tinsley, who I pastored with at First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, died, and it hurts. Now, I loved him. I loved him in life. I love him in death. He's in heaven right now. I am absolutely 100% convinced of that. I thought about him during every song that we sang this morning. I imagined him sitting in heaven next to Jesus, who he loved so much, praising and glorifying God. But for those of us who are left behind, including his wife, including his young daughter and his other grown children, including his friends, it hurts. 
Someday, maybe it won't hurt. But now, it hurts. For all of us, our brokenness is spiritual. Romans 3 tells us that there is no one righteous, no, not one. Even grandma, even grandma. Isaiah chapter 64 tells us that all of our good works are like filthy rags. We confessed it today. Not, not our bad works, our good works. All of our good works are like filthy rags. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Not wounded, not sleeping, not in a coma. Dead, lifeless. We need to be born again, not revived. We need to be born again. In other words, I am Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth is me. And you are Mephibosheth. All of us are broken, hurting people. Mephibosheth needed kindness, and so do we. Where do we find it? Will it come from the king? Next, we're going to look at Ziba, a man who withheld kindness from Mephibosheth. Now, according to the story, Ziba was a very wealthy man. In verse 10, we're told that he had 15 sons and 20 servants. That's the equivalent of saying he drove a Cadillac, he drove a Mercedes, he lived on the rich part of town, he went to the best restaurants, all the fine dining. He was a wealthy man. He was a powerful man. First, he worked for King Saul, and later, he worked for King David. He had access to two of the most powerful people in all of Israel. Now, this is just speculation, but I think there's probably a connection there. There's probably a good chance that Ziba sold access to rich, powerful people in order to increase his salary a bit. It's like meeting someone who's the schedule maker for the President of the United States who just so happens to be a multimillionaire. It's probably not a coincidence. So here's the question. Of all the people who could have helped Mephibosheth, why didn't Ziba help Mephibosheth? Why didn't he use his wealth and his power to help Saul's disabled son? Why was he so indifferent to this profoundly broken man? Was it greed? He simply didn't want to give his money away? Was he afraid? Was he afraid that if he was somehow associated with King Saul's grandson, then maybe it would put him at odds with King David and people would be after him? We don't know. More pointedly, what's stopping us from helping the Mephibosheths of our world? God has given us tremendous wealth, certainly some more than others, but all of us are wealthy compared to the people of the world, the vast majority of the people in the world. Just last week, we heard from African missionaries who told us that there are Africans who earn $100 a month. Our church supports a school in Uganda where they pay their teachers, working people, $100 a month. How many of you, show of hands, make more than $100 a month? All of us? I think even our high school students make more than $100 a month working at Whataburger or, you know, Chick-fil-A. Of course, $100 a month. 
God has also given us influence. We have connections. We have networks of friends. I'm not the most well-connected person in the world, but if someone needed a job from this congregation, I could make two or three phone calls, and eventually I think I could find them a job. If someone needed addiction recovery or social services, I could make a phone call or two and allow that person to get plugged in to people who might help them. Not only that, we are surrounded by broken, hurting people. They're right here in Pensacola. They're right here in Cantonment. We have people overseas in places like China, in places like Africa and Mexico. They're planting churches in California. They're building hospitals in Haiti. God has given us far more resources than Ziba ever had. We have more wealth, we have more power, we have more influence, we have better education, we have better technology. The question is, are you willing to help? Are you willing to use the gifts and resources that God has given you to serve others in need? How might $50 a month change the life of a West African farmer? How might $1,000 a month change the life of a missionary church planter who's working amongst unreached people groups, people who have no connection to Jesus and the gospel of his grace. Ziba saw Mephibosheth's need and he did nothing. What about you? Will Ziba's legacy be your legacy or will David's legacy be your legacy? That's where we're going next. Our third main character is David, who lavished kindness on Mephibosheth. Verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for, for Jonathan's sake? Now, the word kindness is a little bit weak, but in fairness to the translators, it's a very difficult word to translate. The Hebrew word is chesed. Chesed. It's a difficult word to say because you have to get a little bit of phlegm in there. It's almost like you're clearing your throat. Not chesed, chesed, chesed. What is chesed? Chesed is loving kindness. It's mercy. It's sacrificial love. It's loyalty. It's commitment. It's using all of our gifts and all of our talents and all of our resources to bless broken people. To help hurting people in their time of need. Chesed is what David showed Mephibosheth. Verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. Chesed. For the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now, that's, that's, just, that's not just a promise that Mephibosheth will never have to cook again, though that would be a great promise. What he's saying is, I will be your friend forever. I am committed to you forever. You will always have a place at my table. Essentially, you will become my son. You will become an adopted member of my family. And all that I have, all my wealth and all of my power and all of my influence will be used for your good, for your blessing, for your peace. You're part of the family now. 
What a picture of grace. What a picture of mercy. David's covenant faithfulness, his unconditional love, his chesed, healed this broken man. Who loves like this? Who serves like this? How can the love of a prince invite a pauper to eat at his dinner table? That leads us to our last main character, Jesus, who lavishes his kindness on everyone who believes. My friends, by nature and by choice, we were God's enemies. We were unworthy, we were broken. When God found us, he found us wandering in a spiritual wilderness. We were exactly like Mephibosheth. God could have ignored us, he could have left us in the wilderness, he could have brought us near to punish us for what he'd done, we'd done. He could have very easily said, you simply do not belong at my table, and he would have been absolutely justified in saying that. Instead, Jesus said, welcome to the family. Because of Jesus, we have chesed. Because of Jesus, we have forgiveness. Because of Jesus, we have a place at the table. Because of Jesus, we are adopted sons and daughters of the king. How did Jesus do it? He gave up his wealth. He gave up his power. He gave up his place at God's table. He experienced the curse of God on the cross so that we might experience the blessing of God at the table. My friends, when you get that, when you understand that, when the gospel becomes more real to you than anything else, when the love of Jesus overwhelms your heart and you see yourself as that unworthy person who's invited to eat at God's table forever, who's been adopted into God's family through Jesus, it will completely change your life. Completely. Here's what I mean. Sometimes I don't want to love my enemies. Sometimes I don't want to help people like Mephibosheth. Sometimes I see people like Mephibosheth with all of their problems and all of their concerns, and I think, listen, Mephibosheth, I'd love to help, but I'm a busy man. I have limited resources. I have a limited amount of time. I can't possibly be bothered to help someone like you. Maybe you should go listen to a TED Talk. Maybe you should listen to a, read an inspirational book. Maybe there's a Bible verse or two that would help you out of your problems. Maybe you need therapy. That's the Zeba trap. The Zeba trap sees all of the broken people and hurting people around the world and says, I'm too busy, I can't get involved, I can't possibly use the resources that God has given me to help someone else. And so we ignore the Mephibosheths of the world. Let them solve their own problems. How do we avoid the trap? How do we embrace our calling as citizens of the kingdom of God? How do we become like David? How do we see others the way he saw Mephibosheth? My contention is that we can love the Mephibosheths of the world only to the extent that we realize that we are the Mephibosheths of the world, and Jesus loved us. That is the greatest 
Cinderella story ever told. It's truly a story of rags to riches. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the story of David and Mephibosheth. It's the story of Jesus and me. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your grace toward us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Thank you for your kindness to Mephibosheth. And I pray, Lord God, that the gospel would become so real to us that we would do for the Mephibosheths of our world what David did for his son's friend. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us and bless us, for we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing our closing song of celebration?